Welcome to the Uncover Pod, the podcast where we delve into the world of legal risk and compliance. I'm your host, Daniel Chatfield, and each week we will be speaking with industry-leading experts, thought leaders, and successful professionals who have made their mark on the industry. We'll explore the latest trends, share best practices, and offer insights and advice that will help you navigate your career path with confidence and clarity. Uncover is a specialist legal risk and compliance recruiter, and whether you're a seasoned professional or just starting out in your career, the Uncover Pod is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's uncover your potential together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Uncover Podcast. My name is Daniel Chatfield, the director and founder of Uncover. We're a specialist risk and compliance recruitment agency that focuses in placing risk and compliance professionals into law firms across the UK. Today, we're joined by fantastic guest, Amy Bell. Amy, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Amy, I'm, re- I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. I think it's there certainly has been a lot of change since when we first met. Um, I think it must have been in 2016, 2017 at Bill's Coffee Shop. Um, so I'm really, really happy to have you on a, as, a, as a guest on the show and yeah, looking forward to the, the conversation. Yeah, goodness me, that was such a long time ago, wasn't it? That was just when I was not long had started out I think um in compliance on my own I, th- I think it was even pre that to be honest I think yeah it's maybe it's 2015 anyway we'll 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 get into it yeah perfect perfect I mean do you want to start by maybe giving us a, a bit of a, a background of yourself and telling us about how you how you got into the risk and compliance space yeah by accident is the quick answer um okay. <laughs> I think a lot of us did get into it by accident so I'm a solicitor qualified um in 1999 um I quali- qualified in a kind of high street um environment a five office relatively small regional um law firm so um in that kind of training contract you do all the jobs you know you do um you order the stationery, you sort the post room, you deal mm-hmm. with the complaints, um, you know, you research things, you find files, you look up rules, you ring professional ethics, all of those. In a in a small firm, the trainee does all those those jobs mm. really. Oh, sounds um, quite similar to, to my training contract, in fact. <laughs> Very similar indeed. I think that they do, you know, in the smaller firms, they do you're an extra resource, and so you mm. get all the jobs going out of like downfall. Um that was my first kind of experience of compliance was getting really familiar with the guide to professional conduct of solicitors and figuring out um, some problems. Uh, but when I qualified, I then went to a large firm in Manchester um, and specialised in personal injury. Um, I'm a process person. I like process. I like trying to figure out how to make things efficient and make them work properly. Um, and so when I came to do car accidents, which was my chosen specialist field, mm-hmm. I was very efficient at it very organized, was able to turn over cases twice as quickly as everybody else. Um, and, and I loved it. Built built processes um, was, was probably one of the first people to start using uh, a, a paralegal model so that everything wasn't done by the lawyer. When I first started in law, like secretaries still had typewriters. That's how long ago it mm. is. Um, wow. But um, the firm I went to work at, we were doing this kind of volume work and we saw fixed costs were coming in personal injury. And I thought this cannot stand the solicitors uh, sitting and dictating every witness statement, every particular claim it won't work. So I got into training other support staff once I had a trigger, like it's a rear end shunt, um, car mm-hmm. accident, we'd have a standard witness statement, we'd have a standard particular claim that you could then individualize for your clients. Um, and so I got into kind of building that process and I really enjoyed that. Um, 
but I was a bit stuck, if I'm honest, because I was a pretty mm-hmm. good biller and uh, a bit pigeonholed into that. And I just didn't, ha- didn't have any challenge for me um, after a while. And um, I couldn't really, uh, at that stage, kind of four years PQE, go back to retrain to do something else. Um, uh, so a role came up eventually in the business for a legal skills trainer. And I'd been doing some departmental training. Like I said, I trained paralegals on how to do my job. And um, I've trained the other lawyers on rule changes and things like that. So I thought, I'll have a go at this. And it was only going to be a part-time job and I needed a full-time job. Um, and so they gave me AML compliance, which in those, so we're talking 2005, it was quite new. Um, and they're like, oh, we know we've got to do this AML, but we just, um, we're not sure if we're doing it properly and we're not sure everyone's keeping up with it. So can you monitor it and and make it happen? Um, so that's how I started my career in compliance. Um, about 12 months later, the training manager decided not to come back from maternity leave. So I also got that job. So I had this strange kind of hybrid role of mm-hmm. head of learning for a, what became a 700 piece person firm and um, head of AML compliance, including all the CDD. I built probably one of the first CDD teams when the seven regulations came in. I said, we can't keep letting the lawyers do this. It's too complicated. Let's have a central team. Um, and then also the other bit of being working in AML that people don't always get exposed to. Um, is the actual dealing with the suspicious circumstances and doing the reporting to the money laundering to the National Crime Agency or NSIS mm-hmm. or SOCA, whichever brand of uh, National Crime Agency you've got. Um, and so what I often find is that people who have become analysts work their way up through analysts. They don't always get exposed to that other side of it. Mm-hmm. But I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to be exposed to both sides of, of the AML role. So, yeah, I did that for another seven years. Um Left there to go and work at a network quality solicitors um, where I became the head of risk and compliance, which was a wider role than just AML. Um, was, and it was around the same time as the cult coffer regime coming in. So it was really good timing. We all had to learn it together and figure out what was expected. Um, so I did that there. We probably met as I was leaving there and looking for a new role, I reckon. Um, and, sounds about right, looking at timing. Yeah. Um, and I uh, interviewed for a few things, went into a law firm for a little while, really lovely law firm, but it just wasn't for me. I just enjoy the challenge of loads of different problems to solve, getting out and about and impacting as many people as possible. And so after six months with that firm, I decided to resign and start my own consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that consultancy is now, oh, goodness me, it'll be nearly seven, um, seven years old in April. Wow, it's gone by it's gone it's gone by quickly. Rest is history, right? Um yeah. yeah, well I created I went out on my own. That was the plan to be a consultant on my own. Mm-hmm. Um and after about six months, I was working seven days a week. And uh, my business partner Sally, we have a couple of businesses together, and she said to me, Um, we've had a tech business and I was supposed to be helping her in the tech business and, and working on tech products, and we just never had any time. She said, You're gonna have to create a company to put all of this work in that you haven't got time to do. Um, and that's that's how Teal was born. Was um, we realised I was onto something, and that was a lot of firms needed help, and I only had one pair of hands, and so we started building a team to help support me, um, and and look after our clients. Um, so Teal six in January. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And now there are twenty one people involved in Team Teal. Okay. Not all of them um, employees, but we've got still got some freelancers, and we've got some people that that work with us on a contracted basis. But yeah. Is that, is that all in the UK or is that across different different jurisdictions? Yes, all in the UK, all in the UK. Mm-hmm. 
you know, occasionally some of them go to the holiday homes in other places, but yeah, generally they're in the UK. <laughs> okay, okay, fascinating. And I was just just thinking there. I think when you mentioned that kind of you you fell into the role in two thousand and five, um, that's that's a long time ago. I think in terms of in terms of risk and compliance being a relatively new space, I think yeah, I mean you inevitably would have been one of one of the the people at the cold face when it started taking off. Um, fascinating, and it's so good to hear that Teal's obviously doing so nicely, 21 people in that amount of time. Fantastic to hear. Um, and, and Amy, I suppose in terms of sort of Teal as a company, because I imagine it has evolved and, and, and developed over the years, are you able just to give us a high-level summary of what the company specialises in? Yeah, absolutely. So we help law firms with all the rules and the regulations that they need to follow, and specifically law firms. But we don't only help law firms. We do um, other types of industries, but law is where you know, most of us that work here were kind of cut our teeth and this is what we know the best. Um, and really what we do falls into four categories of, of kind of specialism, if you like, anti-money laundering, which most people were most known for, I think, um, regulatory, um, data protection, and then risk management, which is a kind of area that I work a lot on, but it's not, I don't think that's a, that obvious to people. Um, but one of the reasons, well, the reason actually that Team Teal exists the mission that we have at team teal is about making everybody who deals or encounters legal services safe and feel safe um and so uh that means that uh risk management is a huge part of that if a client experiences uh uh some an issue they need to complain about or the firm is negligent in any way that's kind of mm -hmm. the very opposite of what we set out to do and compliance is really a framework to try and stop that happening. And so if it is happening, then something's failing along the way. Compliance isn't working somehow. Um, and so, yeah, the, the focus for us, while we look at all of those disciplines, whatever we do in those disciplines, it's all about how do we make it work as well as we possibly can so that everybody, the clients and the lawyers, because believe you me, having been a fear and having had clients complain, and having had claims that I've had to notify to the insurer, there is no worse experience than that, I think, as a lawyer. Um, mm. And so, you know, our, our mission is is twofold in that sense, is that, yes, it's definitely about protecting clients, but it's also about protecting the people who work in the law. Um, in 2021, there was a study by Law Care that said 69% um, of the lawyers that they surveyed had uh, experienced an impact on their mental health. Mm. Um, um, and that's a huge amount. And we're seeing that. We're seeing people leave the profession. We're seeing people who um, are struggling with mental health issues, with stress, with overwhelm, with overwork, with burnout. And that's um, it's becoming, you know, almost a, um, epidemic levels that we need to stop and do something about. So that's really what we're doing, as yeah. well as writing policies, training, auditing. We're doing it all from a position of does this work to keep everybody safe? Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I imagine for, I think it's a, it's probably the thing that people often don't necessarily think about is that I think when there obviously are, are complaints and sort of investigations, the ramifications can be fairly drastic in terms of people getting struck off the roll, having to change careers, whatever it might be. And I think the pressure around that that's point is obviously very serious. Yeah, that's the fear, right? That, you know, what are we actually scared of is going to happen? And because I think it's a little bit worse than that, actually, in the legal sector, because um, the legal sector, unlike many other professions, sectors, is influenced by people's progression or the ability to progress. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but when I set off 
in the law. I was 14 when I decided I wanted to be a solicitor. And I thought the only place to get was equity partnership. And how could I get there as quickly as possible? Because then I'd have made it. I'd have done mm. it. And it's not that clear in law firms often how you get there. It is sometimes a case of your face fit and you're making enough money for the firm and you, um, you know, you're just being picked. You're just being selected to go on that that journey. And so when people don't have that kind of clarity on how they get that progression and it feels opaque and it feels sometimes that it's not rule-based or it's not, or the performance that it's based on is not necessarily conducive to a work-life balance as in big billing, then people make decisions about, I'm going to have to do this so that I can progress. I am going to have to say yes to that piece of work, Mm -hmm. even though I know I'm too busy, even though I know I can't service it properly, even though I know I'm going to lose sleep or quality time with home, I'm going to have to say yes to it because what will they think of me if I don't? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a real pressure that still drives lawyers, probably less so than in my day, because things are getting better, things are more transparent about how you progress through law firms than they used to be. But it's not like another, take doctors or nursing or teaching. There are bands of competency and pay rises and there's a proper structure you can find to progress. Mm. We don't have that in law. We have whatever the business values and then performing at that. So, you know, and, and billing hours, billing targets, I think are behind quite a lot of things that we see complaints breaches not necessarily a direct cause of those things but when you drill down into why did this highly trained highly skilled highly professional person make that mistake it's usually because they were driven by something else than than compliance than what we designed what compliance Mm. designed for you to do there's usually a competing agenda that that does that yeah well I, i think i think i mean i think you've hit the nail on the head there i suppose that, that that competition between your your peers internally, externally, and also your colleagues that you may have come up come through law school with, however many years ago, I think there's that constant leveling that goes on. Um, so yeah, it's, it's understandable why those those things happen for sure. Um, Amy, I suppose in terms of sort of teal and in terms of your experience, obviously you worked with various different firms of different shapes and sizes. In terms of the, the the way in which the space have evolved over the years, it might apply differently in different sections, but overarchingly, what are the main sort of changes that you've seen in the in the risk and compliance landscape over the years? Gosh, I've seen loads. So obviously, when I started off in compliance, we had uh, the aforementioned Guide to Professional Conduct of Solicitors, which was rule-based, okay? This is, here is what we expect you to do as solicitors. And where there was any kind of, vagueness in that rule there was probably a load of cases that told you how to interpret it and there was a lot massive footnotes i've still got the copy of the book because it's so mm. super useful i do feel sorry for anyone coming into the law that doesn't know that book because that, that it was so full of detail and now you look at what you get from say the solicitor's regulation authority which is principle based then mm-hmm. we move from rule based this is what we expect to see to principle base, this is what the or the outcomes we had in the middle of that, and now we've got principles. So this is really difficult. It's not too bad if you know the rules, if you know the original rules, and you carry on following the principles in those original rules. You can probably get to be compliant with the other things. If you come at it completely kind of fresh, and you just take outcome focused regulation that we had before, and now you've got principle based regulation in the current codes of conduct, 
you look at that and you go, well, what does it, what can I do? What can't I do? Where's the line? Um, and so that's a massive shift. It, it changes dramatically what somebody who sits there to write a policy and procedure does. Because if you knew the rules, you could predict what you're expected to do. The moving to a principle-based one, this is about moving to risk-based approach. So you're supposed to reflect on your practice and you're supposed to decide what works for you and hope hope it's right, really. Now, mm-hmm. in, theory, in theory, as long as you show you're working out for that and you say, well, I've thought about it and these are the reasons that I think this is the right policy. I can give you an example, right? Back in the day, interest on client account. Interest on client account in the old guide to professional conduct of solicitors has got a matrix. If you have this much money for this much time, this is what you've got to pay. It was rule-based. You didn't have to do any thinking. You just followed the matrix. Then they replaced it with um, uh, that you have to give interest promptly and uh, reasonable interest, I think the word is. But essentially took away any of the guidelines that you had and Mm. you as a friend to figure it out yourself what's fair. Um, and hope mm. that somebody agrees with you later on if somebody complains about it. So that is a massive shift if you are trying to do that. And, and one of the challenges and one of the re- reasons for Teal existing really is that for those smaller law firms in particular that don't have a person who's devoted their career to understanding this stuff, mm. they can't afford to have a person that has done that in a smaller firm. Who helps them? How do they get through it? How do they navigate it? Um, and yeah, that, that's what that's what I saw really is that Having been in those types of firms, as I said, I used to look up the rules when I was a trainee. Now mm-hmm. you take the rules away and say, you firm have got to figure out how to manage this. I know that my boss asked me to look at those rules because he had ta- he had no time for doing everything else, you know, running the business. He didn't have time to sit there and study, yeah. um, you know, what is meant and, and sit in a pine on it. And so it's a massive challenge. We've seen the two things happen. Number one, take away the certainty or the or the relative certainty of rules to go to principle bases. But we've also, at the same time, increased massively the responsibility of the firm to manage this themselves. Because if you think about it, prior to outcome focused or principle based regulation, what you would see, because it was rule based, is you would see consistency everywhere you went. So you'd go into ten law firms in a town, and they'd all have a very similar rule two letter or you know mm-hmm. back in the day it all be the same because it, it was rule based and there was no wriggle room and of course that's why we got outcome focused regulation in the first place because they were trying to encourage competition competition happens if you can be innovative if everyone's got the same set of prescriptive rules there mm-hmm. is that stifles competition so we take the rules away to allow people to figure out what to do but as a regulator then you've no idea what anyone's doing in mm. the past you did know what they were doing because they were all doing the same now you take it away, you've no idea what they're actually doing. And so then you've got to figure out who's responsible for that. And that's where Colt Coffer came from. Colt Coffer uh-huh. came from saying, somebody's got to be making sure this is done properly. We can't knock on every door as the regulator. So we're going to make someone in the business responsible for making sure it's done. That created this whole career line of compliance mm-hmm. within law firms where those people have got to be able to figure this stuff out to the satisfaction of the regulator. So huge change from when I started in the law. Of course, many people now have never known anything different than cult coffers and that kind of internal mm-hmm. responsibility. But I remember kind of the good old days when it was all a bit predictable. Not that I mind innovation and doing things differently, but I just think it's such a burden if you haven't got the time to spend your whole career immersed in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose that probably leads us quite nicely onto our, our next question in terms, I mean, do you foresee any sort of similar seismic shift coming in the near future or, or any yeah, other sort of changes that, that, that might occur? I don't, I don't think I see any massive, um, particularly massive regulatory changes coming in that they've built a future-proofed kind of regime now that they can add to and they can tinker with as things start to emerge, especially with kind of the risk. If you look at the SRI, you look at risk outlooks and things like that, that and warning notices and things like that that they can, can do. I'm sure they don't want to rip up that book and start again. Um, here's what I do think that we will see is an expectation by regulators to move away from putting a policy and procedure in place and hoping it works to more of a... Uh, put a policy procedure in place that you know works. Well, I've spent a lot of time in the last seven years, particularly, but actually the whole of my career, being curious about why compliance doesn't work. When mm -hmm. we've, you know, claims, they've all happened before. It's very mm -hmm. rarely a mm -hmm. brand new thing, unless there's a change in the law and nobody's ever figured out how to break that yet. Um, but generally they've all happened before. Complaints have all happened before. They're all very similar. So why we keep getting it wrong? Like, why are we still struggling with these things? That's, I've mm. always been curious about that. And I think the, the challenge is that we put policies and procedures in place that we think are going to work. And the only time we know they're not working is if something disastrous happens, like there's a complaint, mm. like a claim. But that thing could have not been working for ages. People could have had workarounds to avoid it and they'd be doing their own way of doing it. So the compliance that you're putting in does not actually work. Um, and it's interesting, when I first started Teal, I did survey a load of uh, my clients and I said to them, guys, guys, what's the biggest problem you've got with compliance that I can come along and fix? And I thought it would be something around, I haven't got enough time to do it. It's hard to find out what I'm supposed to be doing in this kind of risk-based or you know outcome-focused world. It, that wasn't number one. Those, those were number two and three. <laughs> but number one problem was despite the time and effort that I'm putting into compliance, I still don't feel it's working. I mm -hmm. still don't get the comfort that I need that me as the cult, me as the coffer, me as the MLCO, I put that effort in so I should be safe. And this is why I go back to what Teal's kind of mission is, is to help people feel safe, including compliance officers, that they've done what they should do. And if a regulator knocks on the door, they'll be safe. Um, and so that, when I started kind of unpacking that, I started realizing what we were doing that meant that it wasn't safe and that's where I came up with um compliance that works which is my kind of methodology that I build everything around and one of the cogs on compliance that works is consistency so we often put policies and procedures in place uh, this is the example I always use in training uh, confidential waste every firm has got a policy saying we keep our clients matters confidential mm -hmm. and Every firm's got a procedure that says, should you need to dispose of physical confidential waste, it must go in a confidential waste um, shred bin. Every firm's got that, right? And then I ask them, how do you know if it's working? Because at the moment, they only know if it happens to be that a piece of paper goes astray and someone finds out about it and complains. Other than that, they don't know if it's working unless they go and check the normal bins. Sometimes people say, well, I'll check the thread bin and something's in it. But that just shows you who is complying. And it doesn't mm. show you who isn't. You've got to think about how the person who isn't complying here, how am I going to find that out? Where am I going to see that? And that's called a control framework. How do I build a control into my policy? Now, in other areas, other regulated industries like financial services, 
Mm-hmm. Control frameworks, do it all day. I always talk about um, Weatherspin's toilet. Everyone's like, where are you going with this, Amy? Talking about <laughs> Weatherspin's toilet now. I'm, I'm intrigued. If, <laughs> well, exactly right. If, if you go in a Weatherspin's toilet, if you go any any toilet, any pub chain toilet, a McDonald's toilet, any of these things, you go to the toilet and on the back of the door as you're leaving the toilet, you will see there's a sheet that someone's initialed every hour. Mm-hmm. That's a control framework. They've got a policy. We will keep our toilets clean and you know nice for customers. There's a procedure every hour. Somebody has to go in and check it. Now they don't spot check by turning up in a toilet and waiting for an hour to make someone come sure someone comes in. They mm-hmm. spot check it by saying fill the form in and tell me you've done it, and that's what we'll check. That's the control. They built mm-hmm. that in. And so in in legal AML really is the first area where they're tentatively moving you towards control frameworks. How do you know this stuff works? Independent audit in AML mm-hmm. would be an example of a control framework that you know it works. The rest of compliance, we that it's not there. It's just not in our lexicon. We don't know what it is. And I know this because back in 2004, one of the a job I had then, I had to do, I had to was seconded into a, a business that worked very closely with financial services. And I've been doing compliance for, you know, a good old time by then, 2004, nine years. And I spoke to this lady, this compliance lady at this um, bank, and she said, oh, so can you please forward a copy of the control framework, please? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Put the phone down, like, what's that? What's one of them? I have no idea. And I've been here for nine years and, you know, teaching and lecturing on compliance. I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah, I and that's when I kind of realized that there's no consistency to what we put in. We put the policy and procedure in place, but we actually have really no clue whether it's being followed mm. or not, unless something really goes wrong. And I suppose, how would you say law firms deal with this? How do, how do they get ahead of the, the, the potential downfalls that could arise or pitfalls? Is it constant auditing? And, and I suppose in terms of getting those controls that you you mentioned, because I suspect having them, well, the idea of them versus implementing them are two entirely different things. And I think potentially could be quite a lot of pushback from the business. How do they actually go about navigating this? Yeah, so, this is a, so compliance at works is a kind of six-stage stage model. It's not mm-hmm. just a control framework. So you can set yourself up for success with other things that you're already doing, actually. The first thing with compliance that works is you need clarity on what it is you're supposed to be doing. So that's sometimes about what's the law, what's the rules, what am I supposed to be following, getting training, that kind of stuff, properly understanding what's expected of you. But also things like understanding the firm's risk appetite. How? Because mm-hmm. one of the things I often see in compliance, people who are not satisfied in compliance roles, and I bet you see this as well, is that the, there's a disconnect between what they want to do and what the business wants them to do. Their risk appetites are not aligned. Absolutely. And so, so that shows up in either I feel like I'm not doing a good job and I'm going to end up in trouble here and I'm fighting all day. Um, or the business going, I need a new person. This person's just not for us. They're too, you know, they're too risk averse. They're stop stifling us from doing mm. stuff. You know, hopefully, happily, we find a match there. But the problem is most businesses haven't done the exercise of understanding the risk appetite. So when they're trying to recruit someone into that role, they've no idea what they're asking for. Mm because that's not a thing that people do so getting super clear on what you need why you need it and then resourcing it properly and i do think that this is a challenge for small firms but i've never met a law firm yet who says they've got enough resources for compliance never <laughs> you know if you ask no. any 
Like we've not got enough people, we've not got enough time. Every single person says the same. So you've got to be smart with how you're resourcing it and thinking about um, getting the right work done by the right level of person. So one file reviewing, for example, using equity partners to do file reviewing to check if there's compliance mm. with the policies doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but yet that's what you often see because they've also taken the legal work while they're there. But there's other ways to get this done. Um, the other ways to kind of, I was I'm trying to stop saying it, Daniel, but I've always said there's many ways to skin a cat. There's loads of ways to build your compliance mm-hmm. program, being open to those different ways. So resourcing is the second C of compliance, if you like. The third one, communication and how we talk about it. So most people outside our world, outside the world of compliance, feel that compliance is boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pointless. Yeah. It's admin. It shouldn't be my job. It shouldn't be somebody else's job. And that's understandable. People feel like that if they've been put through formulaic training, the policy is impenetrable because it's so long and full of words that you don't understand and that you're just giving it and told to read it. I remember my first day in the second law firm I worked in and said, right, so today we'll do your introduction to using your emails and then you need to read the office manual. Then you need to read the office manual. That was the thing. It was 280 pages long. Oh, exciting. Like, first day on the job, really. <laughs> How much of it did I retain? None. <laughs> you know, but it ticked a box. Mm. To say, I have had that person read that thing. It made, I didn't know any of the policies, so it didn't work but they made me tick a box. So how we communicate about this stuff and actually respecting people's time. And so for example, on policies, a teal policy always has a key facts document on the front, uh, like you do with an insurance policy. Here's the key facts you need to know about this mm-hmm. thing that you're signing up to. You can read the whole thing if you want, but these are the critical five pages of information that I need you to absorb. I'm re- hopefully respecting people's time there and saying, here's your signpost. If you need to eventually look up whether you need to do, you know, what you need to do on a client coming from Azerbaijan, here's the link to find mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. Like clients, right? I'm not going to sit and make you read it when it's not relevant to you today because you'll just get irritated with me. So communication. Um, and communication is also about how the business communicates. So earlier on I was saying, you know, these competing pressures on people to, to um, do compliance or do the things that they know people value, billing, time recording and stuff. That comes from communication from the top very often um, by saying you want one thing and then proving you want something else. Mm, you know, mm. people can say compliance is very important. We, we must buy into this, must agree to do it and must support the risk and compliance team to do this. But by the way, we're short 40% on the billing this month. So please, can you do that? Of course, everyone ditches their archiving yeah. and uh, any other admin they've got, any more admin, any compliance work they've got to do at that point because you're all not getting paid if we don't get this 40% billing deficit sorted. Mm-hmm. So sometimes communication accidentally undermines a compliance program. Sometimes not accidentally, but sometimes. The fourth thing is commitment. And this is a tiny little step, but if firms just did this one, they would get much better compliance, which is ask people to promise to do what you've asked them. Get their commitment to, to doing it. Fun fact about lawyers. Um, lawyers sometimes don't tell the truth. What a controversial oh. thing for me to say, mm. right? Oh, um, goodness me. 
Right, I know. Let's just let's just. <laughs> I do this in training sometimes. I say in training, what are these examples of? Tell them I'm on the phone when I'm not. Tell them I've just left the office when I'm not. Tell them it's in dictation and it'll be out tonight when I've not done it. Mm-hmm. These are all examples of lies, right? But they're so kind of. I'm, you're, I'm sure you're going. You could tell me like twenty of those examples in your career that you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Like nobody called it out. Nobody. You know you're actually lying when you say that. So. Um, so let's just be open about it. We 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 give people explanations which are not exactly reflections of the truth. But one thing lawyers never do is break a promise. It's so ingrained in us. If you'll say you're going to do it, you are going to do it because it's an undertaking, right? It's like mm-hmm. Law School 101 must keep a promise that you make if you're a solicitor. So if you ask people to promise to do the compliance you've asked them to, you've got a much better chance of them doing it. Rather than leaving it in plausible deniability, I didn't understand that's what you meant that I needed to do, Amy. It wasn't clear from the training what you expected me to do, Amy. That's all, you know, of course it was clear. I wrote it. Hundreds of other people understood it, so why didn't you? Um, What you say, I have asked you in this training, will you agree to do X, Y, Z? Yes, I do, Amy. Thank you very much. Brilliant. That on its own would increase your chances of getting compliance working. Hmm. Um, Interesting way. So it's really just the... The positioning, because I suppose in any kind of fee earning environment, I suppose not necessarily legal specific. I think inevitably, inevitably, when sort of the the fees start slow down and aren't coming in, naturally the the compliance probably becomes the the, the second thought or falls off the radar. Um, when they're busy as well, it yeah. does. But this is, I think, the other thing about it is. When we're designing the compliance program, so when we're back into capacity, clarity, we are not always making, we make a lot of assumptions sometimes in compliance without asking. One of the things I always do in an audit is I insist on speaking to a member of support staff because the support staff will tell me what isn't working. And actually, if we just surveyed the support staff more frequently in -hmm. communication, my communication card, that's one of the things, ask people how they feel about it. And if they say to, to to you, listen, I understand the training that you've asked me to do. I understand I made you a promise to do it, but actually I can't do it for X, Y, Z reason. Then I can do something about that. I can either help them by re- reprioritizing and saying, okay, I get it. We'll do this instead to make sure that compliance happens. Or we'll um, um, speak to whoever is putting the other pressure on and say, well, this also needs to happen, which 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 you want to do sometimes either well above my pay grade and well above the lawyer's pay grade someone in senior management needs to make a decision about these tensions sometimes the problem is we don't always ask we don't always say and that's because of the fifth cog nicely thank you for leading me to the fifth cog but that's consistency Mm -hmm. so consistency you push a policy out hope someone's going to do it and then we don't know if they do. Well, if you don't know if they do, then you're not, you don't know if it, if they've found a workaround, you don't know whether it actually works in the first place or not. So things like um archiving was a great example, right? Residual balances. We saw a firm just a, I think last week or the week before, fine for residual balances on the file, right? I never met a firm yet who hasn't got residual balances. I used to teach the course on it. Like to the trainees, it was a trainee job in our firm, and I had to write a course to explain to them how to do it. it the ILFM, the Institute of Legal Financial Management, apparently that's one of their most popular courses that they do, residual balances, because everyone's got them. 
And they've got them because you figure, you finish your fee-earning work and you're on to the next fee-earning client. You have not got time to go back to these ones. Mm-hmm. But yet there's a very clear and present regulatory danger if you don't do them. But the message you've got is I've got to do that. I've got to get on with the fee-earning work. I've got to answer the phone. And it, I, I made this point before. It often comes back to do we do we make sure that people have got the time available to do compliance or it, or is our resourcing, our capacity, cog out of line? Because mm-hmm. should it be that lawyer? Should it just be left until that lawyer finds time to do it? Or should there be someone else who does it? Like, as I said, trainees used to have to do it in my firm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's unpicking these things and figuring out what the competing um, uh, tensions are and then examining them, which comes to the sixth one and the last one, which is mm-hmm. culture. If yeah. you haven't got a compliance uh, culture that supports compliance, your compliance is not going to happen. And in my model, is it's, it's a, a load of cogs because it's a machine compliance. That's mm-hmm. why things like a machine. And culture is the biggest cog in the diagram. And that's because you can do all the other steps I've just outlined, get clarity, resource it through capacity, get good communication, interesting training, key facts, documents, and policies, uh, make sure that, you know, that... Um, People have agreed to do it. And then you're checking if they're doing it through your control framework and do all of that. But if the culture is, Mm. well, compliance is just an admin job, isn't it? It's not as important as this Um, or the other. Um, Or actually the biggest one is this, where they let someone get away with not doing compliance. The quickest way Mm. to trash a compliance program is let someone get away with not doing what you've asked them to do. So that's why consistency is so important. You need to check they're doing what you've asked them to do, and then you need to deal with them if they don't. And that is where it gets stuck. That is where it goes wrong because yeah. the business isn't equipped. The lawyers are not not been trained on how to deal with that style of conflict, especially in an equity partnership model mm-hmm. where you're going to need that person's vote at some point. So if you challenge them now, it's going to cause your problems mm-hmm. later on. Right. That's why compliance programs don't work in, in law firms very often is it's a cultural thing, often around lack of skills of having difficult conversations and, and challenging people to be accountable for what they said they'd do. And Emma, um, we, sorry, sorry to yeah. touch off, I suppose, just on the, the point around the, the culture of compliance, because mm. I think I, I completely understand and agree with everything you're saying, but I, I think in most instances i think where we see sort of functions fall down and i think where we see people or candidates in the space the biggest frustration is working in a model where they don't have that culture and where there isn't that buy-in and i think it's all very well sort of saying oh we need the culture we need the culture but if sort of the senior leadership of the firm don't have that culture or resistant to it how how would you advise people or individuals to kind of sort of push that forward well completely well the, exactly the first thing is um for a candidate who, or you know one of your candidates that's in that situation they clearly had a mismatch mismatch of risk appetite between what they were after mm-hmm. and and what they've actually got um often though the firm i found doesn't understand the the consequences i'll give i'll give you an example there's a there's a lady that i know i used to work with um 
one of my very good friends and she is a member of support staff. She was, she's left the law now, actually, as a result of this story I'm about to tell you. <laughs> but mm-hmm. she was in the law for years and years and years and years. And she went to work at a new firm. So we used to work together at a firm. She went to work at a new firms, not anywhere I've worked. And she said, oh, Amy, um, all of the support staff was invited out on the, the staff away day, the strategy day. She says, never happened to me before. Never, No one's ever been interested in what I think about the strategy of the business. I yeah. said, oh, so what happened? She said, we had all these meetings. We talked about the strategy. We had workshops and we were in the table. And I said some of the things I thought. And she said, and then we went out. We went on a treasure hunt and we went to the pub and it was great fun. I said, that's amazing. That's brilliant. I'm really forward thinking. I can see the inclusivity and making sure they get your input into that because you're at the full face. You're literally trying to make these things work. Because mm-hmm. it's often you have to get compliance working, right? She said, yeah, that was great until pay rises a week later. I said, well, what happened then? She said, well, the lawyers got 7% and we got one. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> you, you told me I was valuable to you, told me yeah. I was useful to you, told me my viewing, you know, mattered, and then you gave me a 1% pay rise and you gave the yeah. lawyers 7 So I'm right back where I thought I was. Mm. I wasn't where you think these things happen by accident the firm didn't mean to make her feel like that in fact the firm was deliberately trying to make sure she felt the former included valued Mm. whatever and you start unpicking some of this cultural stuff you'll find that it's not intentional it's not really the business going compliance regulatory fines are a cost of doing business you get the odd one that's like that right it's like don't worry, we'll just save up for the fine. Don't worry about it. But most lawyers are not in that space. Most lawyers are juggling. Most managing partners, leaderships of law firms Mm. are juggling loads of competing things. And they often don't know what's happening to the compliance program as a result of that. And that's where I go back to, you must ask. Hopefully you'll get the trust of people to tell you. And if you think that they're not going to tell you the truth, you need to think about how to get that from them. But I'll give you an example the third mission, if you like, at Teal is to make it a great place to work. We've all worked in the law and worked in some places that that were in environments we really don't want to repeat, and that includes myself, right? When I started Teal, me and my husband and Sally, we started Teal, and we had this vision for it that it would be a great place to work. Nobody would have Sunday evening dread coming to work at Teal. That was our vision. And every quarter we check back in with the firm and we say, this is our mission. Are we still on the mission? And just this, we had our strategy day last week and asked people, what was it that was so special, you know, about it? And one of the things that we do is every week we survey all of our staff uh, and we ask them two questions. Number one, how was your week on Team Teal's bus? And we call it the bus. We want, it's a happy Mm. bus score. Is it a happy bus? Um, So number one, how was your week on Team Teal? And then we ask them, number two, how's your mental health this week? Hmm. And we do that because we need to, when we're a remote team, we don't see everybody walking around the office. I mean, there are about 10 of us that come into the office every week, but that's only half the team. And we want to check in and make it safe to say if something's struggling. We have one of our team members one day put a five down. Now we have an SLA on this, so it has to be eight or above. If it's mm-hmm. less than eight or above, something's going wrong. We need to figure out what it is. We yeah. have lots of SLAs in the business like that that we manage, we monitor. And one day this and guy put a five. And so um, we asked as a management team on a Friday, every Friday we have this meeting. And I'm like, what's the matter there? And so this person's manager said, actually, I don't know what the problem is there. I'll go and ask. And so they went and asked and said, you know, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's great. 
all right, you sure? Yeah, everything's fine. Why? Well, you put a fire on your happy bus. So, you know, that's like less than we'd like it to be. I didn't think anyone read it. Like from his experience in the past of having these kinds Mm. of initiatives, they don't mean anything. Nobody actually does anything with them. Like, oh, we do. (laughs) We're literally knocking Mm. on your door to see if we can help you because we really care. See, I'm not getting it right all the time. I definitely am not. But I'm at least setting up things trying to design things with making sure I can take the temperature of the whole business. Everyone mm. that's interested in role is, I'm interested in what everyone thinks. And I know that, you know, if you've got 100 employees in a law firm, I've only got 20, um, but 100 employees is a lot to manage. 200 employees is a lot to manage. But what if we're not doing that, if we're not asking, what you're getting is people wittering dissatisfied in corners places and, and really winding each other up and getting upset. And yeah. that is a recipe for disaster for compliance because for compliance to work people have to care about compliance working mm. they have to care about keeping each other safe because that's what compliance is for and if they're grumpy they aren't caring about you they're not yeah. caring about them. and i think that the point around the consistency of doing that every week i think because i think obviously things like scores on the scores on the door in terms of mental health and things like that are obviously important but that from my experience, it tends to only be done very infrequently. And I think people's sort of emotional state ebbs and flows to different sort of levels of happiness or sadness or whatever it might be. Um, but I suppose if the general level is low and you're only checking in once every three months, you're probably going to miss a lot. But so, start failing fast. If you're failing, you want to find out you're failing fast. And that's yeah. why, you know, that's why consistency with it. That's why I keep checking. Because you're absolutely right. Oh, here's, mm. here's an interesting thing. We are running a model called Traction, which is an operating model for running a business. Good book, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might be interested in uh, on my entrepreneurial journey. It's been yeah. valuable to me to understand that book. And um, one of the things they say in Traction is you have to get everyone together every 90 days because people need to refresh on the on the mission and feel that they've checked in and they're all like a reset. And um, we we don't always do that. And we definitely see the difference with people communication between teams starts to falter people's happiness lowers frustrations grow if you're not checking in with everybody uh, frequently so you know at the very longest time i would leave it to check in with people is 90 days but for me i i want to know that week if someone's not happy and i can do something about it i want yeah. to know about someone is struggling with their mental health it might have nothing to do with team teal so sometimes we can have someone with a nine on team teal i loved my job this week but actually my my everything happening outside of work means mm-hmm. I'm a four. I still want to know that because yeah, I want yeah. to offer you the support. If you're happy to share that with me, I want to know it because then I can say, okay, so what do you need from me? Do mm-hmm. you need a couple of days off? Do you need me to get someone to pick up some work for you? Are you stuck on something? You know, the amount of claims and complaints I've come across because someone's suffering with the mental health and didn't feel that they could ask somebody to help them with it. Yeah, We're yeah, measuring yeah. it so they don't necessarily have to ask. We can offer because mm. we know you. Um, so, Great yeah. idea. Great idea. I think a lot of people should implement that. Amy, <laughs> I'm conscious of the time. I know you do have another meeting in a couple of minutes. And um, <laughs> so I think we might need to end it there. Um, but it's been absolutely lovely having you on the show. It's been great reconnecting. Um, thank you for all the insights into your business. And it's really great to hear how successful it is. And I wish you the, the continued success over the, the months and years ahead. Well, thanks very much, family. I really enjoyed chatting and catching up as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We'll speak soon.